Hello and welcome to a very special edition of the Checkdown Charlie's Football Podcast. As always, I'm your host Eric, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend and co-host Theo. What is going on, Theo? This time, I'm actually talking to you in person. Yes. It is, as we speak, December 21st, 2022, and Eric has come home for the holidays. Loving it. Loving it. Finally, after, what was it, two years? I think it's our first episode of the Giants podcast that we did in person. Ever since then, it's been over Zoom and everything, and uh, we're reunited, and it feels so good. Yeah, most definitely the highlight of my holiday season right now. Same here. Because it's like, I don't know if you've, uh, if the loyal listeners know much of our journey, but pretty much we haven't been in the same room together for like, like consistently over the course of five years. Yeah. I was living in uh, Southeast Asia. He was living in Scotland. I came back. He was still in Scotland, but at least he's home for the holidays. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, yeah, it's good to be good to be home, you know, visiting the family. But more importantly, obviously, we'll get to record this uh, this episode for our lovely listeners. But yeah, and I'm sure all of us know what it's like to uh, navigate Zoom calls and dealing with conversations over Zoom. There's there's nothing quite like doing it in person. I think. You know what? To be honest, I enjoyed the Zoom calls because I don't have an office job, so I felt slightly professional when <laughs> when I was doing the Sunday chats with you. As somebody who's been to many a meeting that could have been an email, I feel like you know I'd rather do stuff in person. So I'm glad I'm glad we're here together. The most professional part of my day is when we have a union meeting on the team floor, and it's usually over something really stupid, like <laughs> stop pissing in the bottles. And dumping them in the parking lot. <laughs> wow. So the Zoom calls were like quite the upgrade mm. in my view. Okay. Well, yeah, I guess it's all about perspective really when you think about it. But nothing quite like the perspective we're going to give you on the Miami Dolphins. And where we last left off was a tribute to one of the Dolphins legends, Larry Zonka. Mm-hmm. Speaking of power backs in the 1970s uh we just want to extend our condolences to the harris family as of today we found out that franco harris passed away at the tender age of 72 yeah absolutely franco harris was an nfl legend steelers legend most people know him as the receiver of the immaculate reception which happened in 1972 for our purposes of this podcast, you know, went on to face the Dolphins after, but obviously saddened by his passing, and uh, we definitely want to pay our respects to to a legend. Most definitely. They don't make them like they used to, and him and Dolphins legend Larry Zonker were sort of like in their own class in the 1970s. Anyways, on a lighter note, moving on, we left you with the biography of Larry Zonka, and we're moving on to the mid-70s, 1974 season to be specific. The Miami Dolphins would have to begin their 1974 season shorthanded. Their DC, Bill Arnsparger, the aforementioned founder of the 53 defense, left the team to become the head football coach of the New York Giants. Those of you who have listened to our previous season on the Giants will know how that turned out. Arnsparger said years later, The thing that really made a difference was always how prepared and well-versed the players were. They studied their opponents and knew their assignments. 
1972, the year we were undefeated, the defense made only 13 mental mistakes in 17 games. I've known players who've made 13 mental mistakes during warm-ups and practice. After losing to the Dolphins in the Super Bowl, Vikings linebacker Wally Hilgenberg said, The way I see it, the only way to stop Miami is to kick them out of the league. Well, that's something I have not experienced in my entire <laughs> life of watching Dolphins football. Yeah, I mean, you gotta think, at that time, they had just come off back-to-back Super Bowl victories. You know, they are dominant force within the league, and they absolutely trounced the Vikings, as we went over in the last episode. So, things were, were definitely looking up. More crucially, however, was the impending departure of three key pieces of the Dolphins' dynasty. Jim Kick, Larry Zonka, and Paul Warfield. The three amigos were lured away by the promise of a much higher salary in the newly formed World Football League. What lured the trio to the WFL was the contrasting styles of Dolphins owner Joe Robbie and Canadian real estate mogul turned football team owner John Bassett. Many sports teams and businesses eventually need to contend with a harsh reality. Once you spend multiple years on top, your competition will start to headhunt key pieces of your organization in an attempt to level the playing field. This is what we call the championship tax. Part of the issue that the players had with Robbie would be his reluctance to pay them what they thought they deserved. Bassett, on the other hand, would lay briefcases full of money out on the table, while negotiations with Joe Robbie rarely went as smoothly. Quote, I can't conceive of Joe Robbie giving us a Mustang, much less a Cadillac, Jim Kick said in 1974. Kick is also on record as saying that Joe Robbie was sort of on the cheap end. Quote, Although the Dolphins of the 1970s formed a brotherhood in the locker room, it was rarely as friendly a relationship with the owner of the franchise. While negotiating a contract in 1969, Nick Bonaconti threatened retirement after Robbie told him, we don't offer guaranteed contracts. Bonaconti's ace up his sleeve was that he had also finished law school and could have easily switched career paths then and there. He would eventually get what he wanted from Robbie, but not without some strenuous negotiating to get there. The tension with ownership was not reserved to the players. During a team banquet celebrating the 1973 Super Bowl victory against the Minnesota Vikings, Don Shula arrived late. Joe Robbie was not impressed, telling Shula to, quote, get the hell into the room. Not missing a beat, Shula replied, yell at me again and I'll knock you on your ass. One has to wonder if there would have been further repercussions if Shula hadn't just come off of back-to-back championship victories. Wow. This is like the precursor to the Jimmy Johnson-Jerry Jones rivalry. Yeah, I guess so. Think about it. There's no way he would have been able to get away with it if he hadn't have actually done stuff on the football field. That's kind of like a fireable offense, but... You can't really get rid of Don Shula at this point. I've read this multiple times, and this will come up later on in other episodes when we detail Robbie and his family. But one of the biggest bright spots when it came to having Robbie as an owner was that he knew his place in terms of like managing the team mm-hmm. and managing the business. Mm-hmm. So he would never intrude with the operations in terms of on the football field. Right. So when it comes to an altercation like that, you can easily see, based on what I just mentioned, that it was probably easy for Shula and Robbie to just brush it off and just continue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With all of this in mind, it's not hard to see what led Zonka, Kick, and Warfield to accept a lucrative offer 
to jump ship and head to Memphis to play in the WFL at the end of the 1974 season. The question was, how would the Dolphins respond? Fortunately for Shulan and company, the heart of the team and the defense were intact and ready for another shot to defend their title, despite the looming departures. The Dolphins did their best to retool for the 1974 season. They drafted defensive tackle Don Reese in the first round, following it up with tight end Andre Tillman and running back Benny Malone. Their most important selection would be the second round receiver Nat Moore, who made an instant impact on the team. He was voted the best rookie in camp in 1974, and his explosiveness on the field showed why. Paul Warfield ended up missing six games in the season, and Moore filled in nicely as his replacement. Injuries to Mercury Morris meant that Benny Malone would get an opportunity to show his skills. He contributed on special teams and had some good games as a runner. The bow-legged Malone was once called the man who runs like he's falling down a flight of stairs. Malone's particular running style was oddly effective for the Finns. Jim Mandich added, quote, He ran with an ant-stomping running style. I don't think I've ever seen it anywhere else. A long strider, he'd go heel-to-toe, heel-to-toe, end quote. Don Nottingham would come in at fullback, meaning that Zonka wasn't the Dolphins' only batting ram on offense. The Dolphins would finish the season with over 2,000 yards rushing regardless. The Dolphins' defense allowed the second-fewest points in the AFC. Jake Scott led the way with eight interceptions, and Bill Stanfield led the team with 10 sacks. The Dolphins would finish 11-3, notching another AFC East title in the process. In order to defend their dynasty, the Dolphins took a trip to the Oakland Coliseum. Standing in their way were John Madden, Kenny the Snake Stabler, and the Oakland Raiders. The Raiders were the ones who broke the Dolphins' undefeated streak in 73, and were looking for revenge after losing to Miami later that year in the playoffs. Dolphins fans at the Orange Bowl in 1973 celebrated by waving white towels in the air at the faces of Raiders players. In response, Oakland fans were instructed to bring every piece of black clothing they could get their hands on. Shirts, towels, bras and panties, you name it. They brought it, and it was black. Raiders linebacker Villapiano said after the defeat in 73, Nobody treats us like they did and gets away with it, but they did. The Raiders were just as rowdy and rambunctious on the field as they were off the field. They were the most penalized team in the league in 1974, and whether or not this is justified depends on who you ask. Villapiano said, quote, Don Shula being on the competition committee made it extra hard, which was almost like the referees would get an extra pat on the back if they called something, and Don Shula liked it. Dolphins tight end Jim Mandish had another explanation. The Raiders were the most penalized team in football because they played dumb football. It wasn't because Don Shula was on the competition committee. This kind of sparks an interesting debate, to be honest, because you can go back and forth on whether or not it is a conflict of interest for Don Shula to be on the competition committee. But at the same time, the Raiders have always been known as kind of the just win by any means necessary, you know, kind of play outside the rules to get a result. So what do you think? I think this highlights the notion that how political the NFL as an organization is. Mm -hmm. Because, for example, before this, Al Davis used to be the commissioner of the AFL. Yeah. And he had a franchise. Mm -hmm. So I think ultimately, like, there's no perfect solution. It is, in a certain way, a conflict of interest. I think more than anything, it serves Don Shula in a good way because he understands the direction of the game Mm -hmm. and he can build his team accordingly. Yep. 
So I think that's where the, the baked-in advantage is, mm-hmm. more than anything. More on that later. Regardless of the reason, the intimidation factor was definitely at play. Whatever competitive advantage the Raiders could gain, they would. There was future Hall of Fame wide receiver Fred Bolitnikoff, who would cover his socks and hands with a sticky substance aptly named Stick'em. Stick'em would help the ball to stick to his hands and enable him to make impossible catches in-game. The trouble with Bolitnikoff was that he had a pre-game ritual of vomiting before every game, and Fred wouldn't always wash his hands properly. What resulted was a mixture of vomit and Stick'em that would stay on his socks throughout the game. Ken Stabler would tell center Jim Otto to get the ref to bring them a new ball every time he got a pass. That's so gross. I know, uh, honestly. It reminds me of like stories. I'm, I'm not sure exactly who it was, but I think it might have been Mark Schlereth, the offensive lineman for the Broncos. Okay. Who's like had a tradition of pissing himself while they were in the <laughs> huddle. Tradition? Yeah, like... It made him feel comfortable. Oh, my God. Yeah, it gave him a nice warm feeling in his pants. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, some players are just weird that way. Like, there are players who just can't play without throwing up, or they can't yeah. play without doing something very specific. Yeah. It's all psychological, right? Yeah, for sure. I've heard about it throwing up specifically in other sports. Like, there were some hockey players, I think... Maybe Patrick Roy would throw up before a lot of games, or I think one of the goalies anyway would. So maybe that's a bit of a like a stress reliever. Yeah, it also becomes weird for the rest of the team if the player doesn't throw right, up. Right, exactly. Because, you know, athletes, especially back then, would be highly superstitious. So Then there was a matter of the field conditions in Oakland. On that day, the 22nd of December, the field was particularly wet and muddy. Natmore explains that if you didn't have the right shoes on, you could be in for a long day at receiver. The Raiders always seemed to have the right shoes on, however. Quote, there were numerous plays where because the field was so wet and you couldn't get good traction, people were falling down all over the place. Larry Zonka got straight to the point. Field conditions when you play against Madden? There's a lot of argument about that. Wonder why. We go out. It's a dry season, but the field is a bog. Wait a minute. Could they be trying to slow our fast wide receivers down because they're a little hurt in the backfield and the secondary? In his team's defense, John Madden had this to say. Our field was below sea level. We never watered it. They wanted to believe that we did, but it doesn't make sense. I have Cliff Branch out there, who's the fastest guy in football. Why would I want to slow down the game? We never watered anything, but if you wanted to believe that we watered it, I'll tell him we watered it. Gaslighting or not, the aim for the Raiders was clear. Just win, baby. How's that? If they want to believe it, then we'll tell them that we did. But I'm not admitting it. I'm just going to say, all right, fine. If they want to believe it, then it's easier just to go with it. Listen, like, I don't know what to believe, but historically, the Raiders have always been those, that team that, you know, fudge the margins. Oh, yeah. I mean, the home field advantage exists for a reason and it's not just the crowd you know like you can kind of like you said you can manipulate things to to your advantage if you're the home team like i'm all for playing on on that like gray area of the rules Mm -hmm. because i think it makes things more fun and interesting how can you tell the history of the nfl without talking about stick'em yeah exactly or you know the raiders shenanigans which obviously we'll get into a lot more when we actually cover the team but 
you know, this gives you a lot of context as to what the Dolphins were up against in 74. Whatever venom the Coliseum crowd started the game with was quickly sapped out of them when rookie sensation Nat Moore took the opening kickoff back 89 yards for a score. The very first offensive play from the Raiders was a pass tipped by Bob Matheson into the arms of Dick Anderson. Suddenly, things went from bad to worse for Oakland. Crucially for the Dolphins, Jake Scott would injure his knee on the play and miss the rest of the game. That wasn't the only injury the teams had to worry about. Mercury Morris was out with a knee injury, and Larry Zonka was the focal point of the Raiders' defensive efforts. This meant that Benny Malone would again have to step in. When defenses were keying in on Zonka, they couldn't do much to stop Malone. He finished the day with 83 yards, averaging around 6 yards per carry. Injuries weren't stopping Manny Fernandez on that day. Quote, I played in that game with ripped and shredded cartilage in my left knee and a completely separated shoulder. One of my arms was strapped down to my side. It was actually held by a chain. The Raiders' defense stayed resolute, and eventually they were able to tie the game up at 7 after targeting Nick Buonaconti in coverage on Charlie Smith. The Dolphins then leaned on the running game to get them into scoring range, where Nat Moore slipped instead of catching what would have been a walk-in touchdown. The Dolphins would settle for 3 and go up 10-7 at the half after a Dern Herder sack. When the Dolphins went into the locker room to regroup, their coach was busy talking to someone else other than the team. According to Armando Salguero, quote, The legend goes that Shula yelled at the walls in the halftime locker room because he thought Al Davis planted listening devices in there. End quote. Shula never denies the possibility that there would have been devices in the walls, but he does deny yelling at the walls. The Raiders would come out firing to start the second half with Ken Stabler finding a star receiver Bolitnikov on several plays. After batting one up in the air and catching it barely out of bounds, he would eventually secure an even nicer catch for a go-ahead touchdown. Stabler was full of praise for his number one when reflecting on the catch. Quote, I played 15 years and it's the best catch that I've ever seen. Tim Foley is draped on him like a cheap suit and he grabs his right arm and he pulls his right arm behind him. They got their legs all tangled up and Freddie leans out and one-hands the ball and brings it back in and still gets both feet in. Phenomenal, phenomenal catch. There's that Hall of Fame player who always plays well in big money ball games. Fred Bolitnikov proved that day why the award for the best wide receiver in college football is named after him, Stabler said. Quote, I could outrun him. He was not fast. He was not big. He was not strong, but he made the Hall of Fame. He was just a great, great money ball player. The Dolphins needed a way back into the game, and after a pass hit Nat Moore's fingertips, linebacker Phil Villapiano was called for pass interference on a third down play that would have handed the Raiders the ball back. Villapiano insists that it was Kick who hooked his arm underneath him, so let's call it a veteran move to keep the drive alive. Paul Warfield would eventually put the Dolphins ahead 16-14 after a blocked extra point. After another stop of the Raiders, Gary Yepremian hit his longest field goal of the year, the 49 yards, to give the Dolphins an uncomfortable 5-point lead. The no-name defense started to put their stamp on the game. 
as they gave their offense the ball back again. On a crucial third and eight, instead of airing it out against backups cornerback Nehemiah Wilson, Shula decided to run a draw with Benny Malone, handing the ball back to the Raiders. During their next drive, the Raiders were moving the ball down the field when another crucial injury hit the Dolphins. Cornerback Curtis Johnson had to be replaced by backup Henry Stuckey, and the snake took full advantage. On the other side of Boletnikov was track star Cliff Branch. His signature play was the go ball, and that's exactly what happened next. Stabler aired it out for number 21, who made a spectacular and controversial diving catch. The debate on whether or not he trapped the ball using the ground still rages on. And without the benefit of replay, he got the benefit of the doubt. Two Dolphins backups, safety Charlie Babb and Henry Stuckey, collided on the play to give Branch a free path to the end zone and to give the Raiders a 21-19 lead. With just over four minutes left in the game, the Dolphins controlled possession. Holes were just starting to open up in the Raiders' defense, allowing big runs from Zonka to set up the Dolphins for another score. After setting them up with runs down the middle to Zonka, an outside sweep to Benny Malone ended up giving Miami the advantage once more. It's never bad to score a touchdown, but the question was, the Dolphins leave too much time on the clock? Ken Stapler would have two minutes to lead his team to victory in this epic clash. Villapiano had this to say about his quarterback, quote, He would always go, leave it to me. He was just so cool. That's why we called him the snake. And nobody I would rather have back there at quarterback for this final drive than Kenny Stabler. Kenny Stabler, the definition of the meme, hold my beer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Bob Greasy had other ideas. Quote, I really felt that what we needed was somebody to hit him from the blind side to knock the ball loose, or for somebody to hit him as he was throwing. I knew Kenny. If you didn't touch him, they're not going to be stopped. With plays to Branch and Bolitnikov, Stabler orchestrated a masterful drive to put the Raiders into scoring position with 35 seconds, and one last play to try and topple the dynasty. Stabler drops back to pass, and climbs the pocket as he feels pressure. He knows he has to get rid of the ball. Just as he feels a Dolphins defender around his ankles, he heaves up a desperation throw. Through a sea of hands, it eventually ends up with Raiders running back Clarence Davis, and the Raiders pull off the upset. A Phil Villapiano interception sealed the victory for the Raiders and spelled the end of the Dolphins dynasty. Stunned Dolphins defenders looked on as the Oakland Coliseum erupted into pandemonium. Nick Bonaconti couldn't believe it. Quote, I thought they had him. I thought they had the sack. All of a sudden, as he was going down, I saw him release the football. The ball looked like it was going end over end, and there was no way in hell that anybody was going to catch that thing. Captain Crunch, Mike Colon, was the closest defender to the play and said this. Quote, I thought I had just a clear interception. I mean, it was just wide open. I had room to put my hands around the ball, and obviously it was at the same time Clarence puts his grip on the ball. He was coming towards the ball and had the leverage and obviously had a better grip than I had. Larry Ball and Mike Colin were in coverage. Ball said, There was a little crack between Colin and I. I was sure one of us would knock the ball down, but it went through that little crack right between us. It was just a sick feeling. 
It was an awful feeling that hung with you well past the time we got on the plane to come home. You carry it with you for several days or a couple weeks. Clarence Davis was hardly known for his catching ability, and was even said to have had the worst hands on the team. Unfortunately for the Dolphins, he had the best hands on that play. Manny Fernandez was clearly not over it when he said, I mean, this guy couldn't catch a cold. It was probably the only pass he had caught in his career. It's a lousy pass, lucky reception, never forgotten it. Vernden Herter said, It was a traumatic experience. I'd been in the league four years, and it was the first time in my career the season ended before we went to the Super Bowl. I felt I had a sack on that play. It was the first time all day I wasn't double teamed, so I got some pressure on Stabler. As I lunged for his ankles, he and I both went down. I felt it was a sack. But I looked up and saw the ball being caught. That was the ball game. I went from a feeling of victory to disbelief in a matter of two seconds. After the defeat, defensive coordinator Vince Costello was heavily criticized. Costello came in to replace Bill Arnsbarger, one of the original architects of the no-name defense. Arnsbarger was famous for his halftime adjustments, something that Costello was definitely not famous for. Manny Fernandez said the following, Vince was a nice guy, and I liked him personally, but it was a terrible coaching. Let's just say there were a lot of opinions being given on the sideline that day. Overall, it wasn't a pretty sight. Costello was apparently fired on the plane ride home. Henry Stuckey, the defensive back who gave up Cliff Branch's long touchdown, had played his last snap for the Miami Dolphins. Things went from bad to worse when a fan came onto the field as the players were exiting and sucker punched Nick Bonaconti in the stomach. Despite the crushing defeat, separated shoulder and all, Fernandez retaliated and started feeding the man punches. Nick Bonaconti eventually had to pull Fernandez away from his attacker. Quote, if he wasn't pulled off of him, Manny would have killed him. End quote. Zonka said it was just his personality. Quote, Fernandez did that a lot. Sometimes he did that in our locker room. Many hit people. That's what he did. Friend or foe, he'll lay you out. He's just ticked off at the world. John Madden was carried off the field by his team, holding a football high in his hand for one of the most epic shots in NFL history. Just like that, after three consecutive AFC championships and two consecutive Super Bowl victories, the Dolphins' dynasty was stopped. Many Dolphins players realized that things would never be the same. Bob Kuchenberg said, I cried like a baby after that game, and that game was the most disappointing game of my life. Because it did stop the dream, and we also knew that our team, as we knew it, wouldn't be the same anymore. Manny Fernandez would say, It was a bitter defeat, and one I've never forgotten. I would have really liked to have gone back, separated shoulder and all, to try and get another Super Bowl ring. Jim Mandich said, In the locker room after the game, and then the bus ride to the airport, and that long flight across the country, you're thinking, I was really a part of something special, and I think it just ended out there today. Just like that, the Dolphins would lose out on the services of Paul Warfield, Jim Kick, and Larry Zonka. Those three players were as crucial to their championship success as any. Even Nat Moore, who spent one season on the squad with them, credits those three in helping him develop as a pro. To his credit, Zonka said that Shula handled their departure in a very classy way. Quote, He had to maintain his image through the season and be kind of a hard guy about it. He didn't talk about it. After the season was over, and it was over right there, 
He came in and acknowledged that he thought we did what we had to do, and he recognized that. We were still friends. Shuler revealed his thoughts on the game 25 years later. Quote, There might have been a few tears in my eyes after that one. All the disappointments of getting knocked out, of doing something that had never been done, winning three consecutive Super Bowls, was hard to take. It took a great play to beat us. It was just one of the great plays in the history of the National Football League. One thing was clear. The Sea of Hands game signaled the end of an era for the Miami Dolphins. The rest of the 1970s presented Don Shula and his staff with their greatest coaching challenge yet. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we will catch you on the next episode of the Checkdown Charlie's Football Podcast. As always, follow us on social media at Checkdown Charlie's on Twitter, at CheckDCharlie's on Instagram, and we will see you later. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Checkdown Charlie's Podcast. Check us out on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. Don't forget to follow us at CheckDCharlie's on Twitter and at CheckDownCharlie's on Instagram. Like, comment, and subscribe on all platforms, and don't forget to leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.